Hi everyone, Annette Nafe here. Welcome to A Turn of Events. I'm Annette Nafe with Nafe Productions and I'm so happy that you're here. We are an event production company specializing in corporate, social, and nonprofit. And today I have an amazing guest, Amber St. Dennis. She's wonderful. She's going to talk about insurance, which is really important for your business. So let me bring her on and let's get started. Hi, Amber. How Good are you? Morning. How are you doing? I know it's really early for you. <laughs> yes. Although I've been up since I think six o'clock your time. No, seven o'clock your time. So. Okay. Well, that's, that's early. And I, we got up around the same time. So. <laughs> Okay, great. So why don't you introduce yourself, tell everybody where you, how you got where you're at, and we want to learn more about you, and then we'll get into all the juicy stuff about getting insurance for your business. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So I became licensed in 2008 and found myself gravitating towards harder to place insurance policies, such as cannabis event planning is a huge one. I work with a lot of industrial artists that go out to Burning Man every year. And so I found myself gravitating towards those harder to place niche markets mm -hmm. and ended up branching off and starting my own agency in 2012 specifically to go after those markets, have more carriers available that do the hard to place markets. So that's kind of how I, I, I consider myself almost like Encyclopedia Brown. I really like to solve problems. Yeah, you know, yeah, mainstream clients tend to be pretty straightforward and a lot of people are going after that. I found there were a lot of underserved markets that did not have access to policies or information on how to best cover their actual exposures and liabilities. So I ended up focusing on that. Right. I, I know when I'm looking for insurance and I have had a couple different kinds of insurance companies that I've worked with, it's been difficult because they don't serve event producers, event planners, event companies. So there's not a lot of companies out there that do provide insurance for them. So I think it's important. And we, everybody should have insurance. And that's like, I mean, anything minor, if somebody's going to sue, they're going to sue every single person. It could be over something like the linens weren't right. And they're going to sue the DJ and the venue and the cave, like they'll sue everybody. So you have to make sure that you're covered. So what type of insurance do we need? For event planning specifically? If you speak event planning, but also if you want to speak generally for other, you know, people that have businesses, because there's a lot of different people on here that are listening. So. Yeah. So, well, right now, as you know, a lot of things are pivoting to online. So the needs of event planning in specific are changing. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you have an in-person event, your biggest thing is going to be general liability, which covers that slip, slip and fall, fire or property damage. If something gets damaged during the event, that's pretty straightforward. But now that everybody's pivoting to online because we can't meet and mass like we used to, the bigger exposure is a cyber liability risk, which is somebody stealing somebody's image and using it without their permission or somebody cyber bombing into a Zoom call, the Zoom bombing where they, they come in unexpectedly any sort of private data that might be recorded and get out there. So all of those kind of things are very new for an event space uh, once it pivots to online. So cyber liability policies are selling more now because of that, because the exposure has pivoted. So is that, the, so if you're doing virtual events, do you have to get a separate policy than your general, because I know you should have professional and, li and general liability. I think that's super important. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I know that I had, 
years ago, I had a coach that she did not have the professional liability and she was sued for something super minor for a couple of bride and groom that were a nightmare. They just sued. They were so happy. They sued everybody all the time. And she lost like $300,000 from it. So it was really not good. I don't know. I can't remember all the details because it's been a really long time, but I learned that early on and they have gotten it. So you have to really make sure when you speak to your agents or, you know, we'll talk about that as well, that you are covered for both. So do, is there now a certain policy that you have to get for virtual when you're doing virtual that's, that covers the cybersecurity piece? Yeah, cybersecurity. So once upon a time, general liability covered some of these other things, for instance, cyber liability. But when cyber liability started becoming a bigger exposure, now that everything's online in general, even before coronavirus pivoted the entertainment industry to being online, there were a lot of claims coming in for personal data getting hacked. We've all gotten emails from companies that let us know our information may have been compromised. That's the first step in a cyber breach. When you're first aware of it, you have to notify people. And so cyber liability policies became their own thing. From an event perspective, the cyber policy is an annual policy. Typically, your general liability might be event specific and you get one based on what the event is. Mm-hmm. And then the professional liability is a even, it's a, another separate policy. So professional liability is anytime you're giving somebody advice or consulting, you leave yourself open to somebody using your consultation and claiming that they, they've suffered financial harm because they followed your advice. And that's what goes like that wedding instance. Oh, we followed your advice. Yes. We looked here and yep. this happened. Right. right. So exactly what happened. And I mean, she lost a lot of money from that. And and at the end of the day, she just was like fed up. She probably could have fought it. And, you know, but, you know, you have to get attorneys and it's just a big nightmare. So if you have that, it's super important to have that. So what are some pitfalls that small businesses and solopreneurs should look out for? Well, in general, it's talking to somebody who walks you through what your actual operations are to discuss what what exposures you have. A lot of times I have clients that come to me, especially solopreneurs or somebody who's new in business, and they have some list of insurance requirements that were handed to them by whomever they're working with, whether right. it's a venue or a client. They give you this boilerplate list of things that their attorney has said, get get people to sign off on all these things. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it doesn't even apply to your business operations. And a lot of times the actual policy that would cover, like a professional liability policy, would cover the advice that you're giving is not stipulated on there. They're typically looking for general liability and workers' comp. And general liability in a virtual perspective, if you're consulting somebody online virtually, you're not on their campus, doesn't actually apply to your operations. So it really is specific to what you are doing. And also, I assist a lot of people in pushing back on a lot of that boilerplate stuff. So most of the time, they don't offer waivers of any sort. They just give you this boilerplate and you need to go through it with your person, your your broker. Mm-hmm. And then you can push back and, and say, okay, well, auto doesn't apply to me because I'm not driving. Right. For this. And then they send you a waiver. So it's, it's that kind of a conversation. It's more of a yeah. of knowing what you're actually doing and how insurance might play into that. And so what about alcohol? So I know, you know, if I have a caterer, I assume they are covering the policy under that. So how does that work? Do I have to be concerned if I'm uh, having alcohol in an event? 
Yes. I find that assumption gets people into trouble. Uh, I have a client right now who's working with a distributor and assumes that the distributor had coverage for their inventory that was on their premises and they didn't. And of course, during the looting, their premises was hit and $29,000 worth of their inventory was stolen and there was no coverage for it. Oh, no. so always, always double check. And in the case of alcohol being served at your event, you want your subcontractor, in this case, a caterer, to provide you with a certificate showing you that they have coverage and in a perfect world, naming you as additionally insured, which right. means your name, your company name and address are on their evidence of coverage. And that tells the insurance carrier, if there's a claim that has to do with any of the operations they're performing for you, their policy kicks in first. Right. And so that's a certificate of insurance, which is a COI, which is what they generally ask for. And a venue will, will usually ask for a COI from anyone who's delivering something through their loading dock into the building. So if I have a photographer that's coming in and they're just carrying their backpack with their, their cameras and that sort of thing, I don't generally need to have a COI. But, and for myself, I don't either, unless, you know, even if I'm bringing some small boxes in and things, but the venues won't um, require me to have it. Some want you, every single person that's coming into the building to have it and others don't. So you need to ask the venue, you know, who do you need to get it? And you need to make sure that your vendors are insured. And so, the, you know, you have to work with vendors that have insurance policies that that's important, especially if you have an AV team that's loading in all of this stuff through the loading dock if they don't have insurance, which I, I think everyone I've ever worked with does. But you have to make sure that you know about that. So if should I be adding, who should we be adding as the business to our insurance policies as the addition, additional insured? insured? From your perspective, additionally insureds are usually going to be the, ven the, the venues and the landlords. So the venue that you're renting space from is going to want to off-put any liability for your event that you're in control of onto your policy as primary. And, and How about the client? So if I'm an event producer and I have a client, should I have the client on mine and the client I should be on theirs as well? It typically, it typically isn't a reciprocated relationship. So typically it's one way or the other, and it depends on how you set up your contract. Mm -hmm. In a perfect world, you would have the client take out an insurance policy for the event, and you name them as additionally insured for planning the event. But the right. event itself has a separate policy for the general liability, but right. then you would name them as additionally insured if you are providing them with, with advice and services. Right. So it's kind of... It depends. And there are two different policies then. There's the general liability for the event and the professional liability for you giving them advice and putting it together for them. Right. And okay, I had a question. I just lost it, but I will come back to that. I'll come back to that. Okay. So what questions should we be asking our insurance broker or agent? Yeah. Well, one thing is having a discussion more often than once a year, especially for your industry, each event can be very different and there are different carriers that write different event types. So it's not always, it's not always just that it's an event policy. For instance, I work with Burning Man artists who are doing industrial fundraisers. It's a fundraiser. Yeah, but it also has music and that can affect what carriers will write it depending on what kind of music it is. Is mm -hmm. it a DJ? Is it EDM? Is it an actual, like an R and B artist that's performing? 
that changes what policies are available. So having a discussion with your broker to make sure they understand the event type and that they are approaching the correct markets and, and getting it covered properly is very, very important every time you have an event. If you have fairly similar events, then you can make that assumption that this is a similar event. It just has X number of people and it's at this venue and you add it in. But those, those are the questions you should be asking. Is this carrier okay with the fact that it's an outdoor event? Is this carrier okay with overnight camping if it's a camping three-day weekend event? Right. Those kind of questions. Making sure that each event kind of has the different parameters of that event covered by that carrier. Because that carrier might be fine with most of your events, but then this one event has something in it that doesn't qualify for that program. Right, right. So, I mean, I do a lot of different kinds of events. I do corporate, social, nonprofit, which also could be galas, retreats, trade shows, like all kinds of different things. And so that's something, I mean, is that something that I probably should be discussing, even though I have a coverage where I'm covered for the whole year and I, you know, I just have a full covered, you know, policy, I don't do event by event. So is that something that I should be discussing with my agent and, and making sure that even with me having different types of event, I should be questioning that? Yeah. And I would question that in writing too. I would send it as an email and then have the broker email you back kind of a, a yay or nay okay. and describe your general. So uh, event types that are hackathons, conferences, those are all going to be in, in one bucket, if you will. And then events types that are more of retreat. Uh, again, that overnight exposure changes what some carriers will and cover right. on those annual policies. Right. Uh, annual policies tend to be more conservative. So maybe most of your events are covered, but that one or two, you might need to pull a separate policy for. Right. So and then, that. What's that piece? What did you say? You'd want to have that in writing. Yeah. So. In writing. I, you have to get everything in writing. Like <laughs> yeah. if I speak and I get an agreement, I write back and say, we agreed, you know, please approve that you, whatever. I always make sure I get everything in writing. Everybody should, because you all, you never know what's going to come back. So I, one thing I wanted to say that I had forgotten about was to make sure that your clients have insurance. So with events, I'm speaking specifically with events. I make sure that my clients have insurance and there are insurance companies out there that will provide insurance. And it usually runs about $350 for their event that will cover them. You, they can get it like a couple days before and it goes into, into effect right away. And then they will provide the COI. Do you provide something like that where you can just provide insurance for just like one event or is it just a blanket policy and it's, you know, they have to a yearly policy? Well, there's both. And again, it depends on the event type. One thing to pay attention to on those short-term policies when you're just pulling event by event is there are, there's a couple of insurance jargons to watch out for, especially in this space. One is the word occurrence-based and the other is the word claims made. Okay. So occurrence-based policies are always going to be preferable. For example, you have an event that is 24-hour event. That policy covers you from 12.01 in the morning until 12.01 in the morning the next day. So you want to make sure that if your event goes through the night and it goes till 2 a.m. the next day, that you have a two-day policy, not a one-day policy for that reason. Right. Then if you have a claims made policy, that means that any claims are only allowed to be made for the policy while the policy is open. So if that policy expires on day number two and all the claims don't come in, if there are any, until day number three, that policy has ceased allowing any claims to come in because it is now a terminated policy. So claims made is never preferable, but for some events, it's the only option. So what we'll end up doing is adding a couple extra days to that policy to allow for any claims that might come in if they're not made right at the time. 
that the event is going on. Right. It's just the opposite. As long as there was a policy in place when the claim occurred, you can right. file a claim a year later and right. it's going to cover. Right. Okay, good. And do the policies, are the pricing for policies dependent on, because I know I'm in New York and everything's more expensive here. So in Los Angeles, I'm sure it's the same. So I know my, it depends on my zip code of where I'm at or where the event is. It will depend on how much the policy is going to be. Is that correct? Or there are other factors in like having alcohol or things like that? That is one factor is where you're based, where the event is. The biggest factor for short-term policies is going to be the size of the event, how many people you're anticipating being there, and then how they rate the event. Again, if is there live music? Are there any um, amusement devices? Is, is there a Ferris wheel? Is it at a camp that has outdoor exposures and a pool? It, those kinds of things will play into how it's rated. But in general, it's how big the event is, is the first defining factor, and then where you're located. And also, does it have have to do with the children being part of the event? Does that make a difference or does that not matter? It's just really based on how many people. And Yeah, it typically doesn't matter from a general liability perspective. Anytime somebody is doing an event with children, I always advise getting a specific clause in the policy. It's called the abuse and molestation clause, which sounds really scary and dangerous, and it certainly can be. But anytime there's kids or any sort of more intimate contact, massage therapy, sports sports of any kind where there's a locker room, you want to have that coverage in place in case there's any allegations of misconduct because that is a separate line on a policy. It's not part of your general liability. That would be something that would be separate. And you probably want to have a separate release form separate from insurance that you put through uh, that everybody signs in case anything happens and they're not liable if their child gets hurt or, you know, things like that. So, okay. So when should we sign up for insurance? Well, I find that a lot of people do it as the last minute thing. They think about it really early on and then the the planning of the event or whatever it is getting launched a new business that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And then it's the last ditch effort to get it in a perfect world. You would have quotes at least 30 days before you decide to go live with anything so that you have time to review, you have time to get the best options in. A lot of times the quicker quotes tend to be more expensive because those are the first ones that will respond. The carriers that are more expensive are going to be the ones that get their quotes out faster to get those emergency quotes satisfied. So the more time you have, typically you have time to have better options. So I would say 30 days out would be ideal. But typically with event policies, especially if it's a similar event that you've had in the past, carriers are more familiar with your account. You can get those out within a couple of days before an event without a problem. Okay, good. Um, and then I also know like for the uh, single day event policies, I, my clients have sometimes, you know, they, they all, like you said, they always do it the last minute. So they've done it like a couple days before and I'm fighting them to get the COIs. And so a lot of times they'll just get it a few days before and it goes into effect usually right away. So what is, what do we need to know? When do you need a broker versus an agent? That's a great question. Okay. So an agent is typically somebody who only works with one carrier. It's also sometimes called a captive agent, but an agent is working directly for the carrier. Whereas a broker has multiple carriers that they work with. And although they certainly have a fiduciary responsibility to the carrier, they're the client's advocate. So a broker is working for the client. The client tends to, usually there's a broker fee. So the client's paying the client, the insurance broker per policy. And although the carrier does give some commission on that side as well, that's the main difference. Typically, an agent has fewer markets because they are directly appointed 
with a particular carrier. Okay. That answers. And if anyone has any questions, please feel free. Amber's obviously got a ton of knowledge here. So don't hesitate to ask us any questions. Okay. So what is the, I think you may have answered this, but what's the difference between general liability and professional? I think we touched on that, right? We talked about that. Okay, great. What does it mean is, so if we're, and, and I, I just want to be clear about making sure that we're moving the differences between moving our business from online to, you know, from live to online. Mm-hmm. And so what, what are we, any different policies here for the COVID, for the pandemic situation? Like, is there a clause that we should make sure that we should pay attention to in there? Yes and no. So with the COVID, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the insurance market after, after all of this is, is hopefully eventually a thing of the past. There's right. going to be a lot of changes. A lot of policies do not explicitly cover pandemic anything. There are two carriers, I think maybe three that explicitly include pandemic coverage. So most policies, you can assume there's nothing in there currently on it. And as far as moving forward, COVID-19 specifically is going to be a known liability. So most policies are going to exclude anything that's already known. You can't get insurance after the fact. But I think the new policies that are going to come out are going to have stipulations that are going to directly relate to any new pandemics that might come down the pike because obviously everybody's going to have more concern with it now. Right. So in my, of course, I had all these events in spring and they all have been moved to next year. Now we, some of them tried to do fall and we're now realizing that's probably not going to happen, but what most of the venues have done and, you know, hotels have allowed us to change our agreements because we moved them. We now have changed what we put in our force majeure. And that is kind of the, you know, act of God's terrorism, things like that, that might happen. And we are adding pandemic in there. So you can go back and speak to, listen, everybody, they still want your business. They're desperate for your business. We have gone back and renegotiated some things and put in, you know, the word pandemic just to cover us. And no one has, has balked at that. So just know that you can go back and add that because most people are moving their events. And so we're making changes and they want your business because they've been closed for all this time. So they want to make sure. Jacqueline's asking which carriers carry pandemic now? They're Lloyd's of London is one of them. Lloyd's of London has a hundred different arms, more than a hundred different arms. And a couple of those do have pandemic coverage explicitly included. Lloyd's of London does do special event policies. Um, I've not seen any of their special event policies include pandemic coverage, but there is another carrier um, that does event cancellation. So event cancellation includes those active gods. They call it catastrophic. So there's a weather incident. There's a, a virus pandemic incident. Your talent doesn't show up. You can get an event cancellation policy, and that's based on your actual costs that you've put out tickets you've sold that you're going to have to refund venue deposits you put down, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be a policy type that you can get in place that does have a stipulation where you can include pandemic on it. So hopefully so that, does that fall under the pandemic on, on that clause? Is it automatically in? So if someone wants to get insurance and they're worried about not being able to sell the tickets for their event, is that included in their policy already? Or is that something that they have to stipulate in the policy ahead of time? It's a separate policy, the event cancellation. So it's your event canceled due to these different entities, right? And you select which ones you want coverage for, and they rate it based on that. Okay. Okay, that's great information. And I think a lot of people are going to want to get that right now because, you know, of everything that's going on. Okay, good. So when do we need workers' comp? And, like, I have a 
really bad story about workers' comp. It's It was a bad situation, and that's probably another conversation for another time. But I, you know, every I think a lot of people, when they're first starting a business, they get some help in, and that person could be, you know, working for other people, but they're not really an independent contractor as far as, as far as having their own business. They're just, you know, working part-time. And, but there are big stipulations with workers' comp, and we probably should do a whole call on workers' comp. So it cost me, it was a nightmare. I had bad advice, and they, you know, I got a notice from workers' comp, and they said, this was years ago, and workers' comp said, oh, we, because I filed, I went and was going to have all my independent contractors paid through a workers' comp policy, through, through like, a, what's it called, ADP. And you, they can pay them, and they don't have to be an employee. So the state gets it, and they say, oh, Annette, you have a business. So we want you to, you need a workers' comp. So ADP never got back to me about it. I didn't know anything about it. This was years on, still learning how to run the business. And I just, I said, well, I don't have employees. I have one girl that was working for me. She was hardly making anything. She had part-time hours, worked for someone else, did her own thing. And my accountant at the time said to me, well, just ignore it. It doesn't apply to you. And it wasn't a New York accountant at the time. So I ignored it and I ignored it for six months. And that's like ignoring it's not a good thing. It's worse than the IRS, I have to tell you. So I ignored it, and then I get an invoice for six months, and then I get an invoice for $64,000 that yeah. I owe workers' comp. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I, need, I need a lawyer. So I had to hire a lawyer. It was so stressful. I seriously didn't even know how I got through that time to get through it. But I got a lawyer. And I interviewed like five different lawyers to see like what it was going to cost me. And everyone had said it would be ten dollars to $30,000 for you to fight this. And I knew it would be $30,000 if that's, you know, the case. It's always the highest. So I found someone who said it's going to be five to seven grand. We'll take care of this for you. And I was fantastic. They did an amazing job. And I ended up settling five years later. Like it literally sat in a pile for 10% and I paid like $6,500 and good riddance. But, and I learned, I mean, I got the workers comp. I still, to this day, I do not have employees, but I'm very, there are specific rules that you need to know about workers comp and what really stipulates an employee versus a, a contractor. So it's something to think about. So on that long thing is when do you need workers comp? So thank you for sharing that story. I love stories like that because hopefully it helps other people avoid that same mistake without having to make it themselves. Right. Um, workers comp is one of those things. So here, and it's state by state. So here in California, they recently passed something called the AB 85, which all of my clients that have independent contractors have been calling me up. They need work comp now because their independent contractors have to be covered by work comp according to AB 85. In different states, it operates similarly, whether they have a stipulation like AB 85 or something similar. Essentially, if you treat a person that works for you like an employee, then regardless of if you 1099 them or put them on W-4 or W-2, you're supposed to pay work comp on them in case they get injured while working. That's what the state wants. The state wants to make sure that if anybody, and this is all states, if anybody is working then and they get injured on the job, there's a policy in place to help that person out. So the independent contractor is really important in any artistic creative field. We, we use independent contractors all the time and they work for us. They work for other people. So it really depends on how you treat them and treating someone like an employee looks like they only work for you. 
They, you tell them what hours they're supposed to work. You tell them grooming habits. Hey, you need to be clean shaven in X, you know, this type of dress. You give them any sort of supplies or materials, business cards, obviously anything branded. And if they have a business card with your, your company's name on it, well, then you're treating them like an employee, even if you're 1099. 1099 them. So that's what the state's trying to do. It sounds like you got hit with some penalties for not having proper coverage in place also, because if you have one employee that's working part-time, that's not a $64,000 policy unless they're doing roofing for you. Yes. Um, the couple years, like they, they took the paperwork from the time I opened the business to the right. time that I had gone to ADP. So I just followed what other people were doing. I thought, oh, let me do this and I'll let them pay for the contractors. And I didn't want to have to deal with the payroll. Right. Had I just answered it, I may have gotten a slap on the wrist and paid $250, but because right. I ignored it. So don't ignore the policies. Pay attention when you get these notices. And hopefully you have a great accountant that knows what they're doing. I didn't. And it, it is what it is. But, you know, we learn by these very expensive mistakes. Yeah. So I, you know, I coach event planners. and I try to make sure that they don't do the same thing. But you know, you, there's nothing you could do. And, but the thing is too, is what about them having your company email? So there are times when they're, you know, they're, they're communicating with, with, you know, peak, with, con, with clients and things like that. And they have a company email. Is that considered you're treating them like an employee? It would be. Yeah. And the thing is about workers comp and the, the bureau that goes after to find people is, is who are violating the, the stipulations and the rules you, you might not get hit. You went for however many years and it was totally fine. And if you have just the email, then you can make the case. The other thing to do is to look at your contracts. So talking to an attorney and making sure you have a stipulation in your contract with somebody who's truly a 1099, they work for you, they work for others. They might take a contract with you where they're working for you full time, but only for a month or on a per project basis. Right. That is the definition of a 1099 labor. So you talk to your attorney and you make sure that your contracts have stipulations. So I cannot tell you how many times I've had clients at the end of every single workers comp policy, you will get audited. They send you documents and they want to make sure that your estimated payroll for the year matches what you actually paid. So every single year, no matter what carrier, they're going to audit you and ask for your your paperwork. If you see something that flags it, like an independent contractor who is showing up with high payroll or something like that, they might ask for more details on it and, and get into it. We've gotten around with multiple clients, we've gotten around to having workers comp say, oh, well, that person is an employee. We're going to charge them work comp. Here's your bill. Right. Some for an entire year for that employee by showing them the contracts that stipulate that there's no work comp provided. Right. So that's something you want to make sure that you're dealing with on your contract side. Right. Also. I also have them sign an independent contractor agreement with my company. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't matter because they, they don't really look at it, but it does help to have it. So if you have an agreement between someone else and they sign an independent contract agreement, that does help. The other thing is with the audits, don't be nervous. They audit everyone every year. It, you know, I usually have them. They now come to the house. I don't do this now because I, I don't have insurance at this point because I'm obviously I don't have a team, a bigger team right now because of what's happening with everything. But so you will get audited. And, you know, what I do is I just give them so much stuff that they're so overwhelmed and they only look at a couple things and then they're, they're good to go. But, you know, you don't need to give, just give them what they ask for and leave it at that. But it usually, it's always been fine and I never had a problem after that and, you know, you, it, it works out. But, okay, great. Did you, is there anything else you wanted to add on the workers' comp or is that good? 
That's the the main baseline is make sure your contracts have a stipulation. Your independent contractor agreement has a stipulation about work comp not being provided that they've signed off on and help you when you get to the audit time. Yeah. Yeah. That's the main thing. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I've had venues ask me about, they wanted me to provide with my workers' comp. And I usually just say that, you know, I'm they're independent contractors. I don't have any employees. And they usually let that go. They don't usually ask for it. If the co- client has employees, then we ask for that and we'll provide it. But a lot of times don't panic because, you know, they, they will, if you don't have it, then you don't have employees. Okay, so we talked about interest absurd, and then we talked about, I just want to make sure I don't miss anything here. I think we've kind of covered a lot. I hope we're helping everyone because it's really important stuff. So Amber, why don't you tell everyone how they can get in touch with you and and how you work with, with clients? Yeah, thank you. My website has a contact us form. So if you go to crimsoninsurance.com, C-R-I-M-S-O-N insurance. You can do the contact us and it'll send me an email directly where I can reach back out to you that way. I also have a Calendly link that we can put up um, in the chat. It's calendly.com slash Amber, my first name with the extra E on the end. So that schedules an actual appointment with me to call you at a specific time so we can discuss your your particular industry, your particular questions. And I don't charge for my time. I do consultations all the time. So feel free, please reach out. I'd rather help people get information and know what questions to ask than have, you know, hear these, these stories of people making mistakes. <laughs> I'd rather head it off at the pass. So yeah, yeah. thank you so much for being here. It's great information and it's so important. And I know I'm going to be calling you because my policy just ended and I need a new one. Perfect. So, yeah. so great. Thank you so much, Amber. It was great having you. Have a wonderful week. You too, hon. Take care. Okay, everyone. That was just awesome. She's just a doll and she's got so much great information. So please reach reach out to her. And I just want to say, if you're, if you have a virtual event and you're, or you have a live event and you want to move it to virtual and you have absolutely no idea what to do, please contact us. I'm happy to talk to you and consult with you and see what it looks like and give you some ideas on you know, how to move it from a live event to a virtual, or if you're looking to do an event, this is a great time to do it now. We have clients that are getting three times the amount of people who are attending these events, and they're making tons of money on their events because people are coming to virtual because they can't, you know, it's a lot less money and they're really doing really well with virtual. I I can't imagine that it's always going to be this way because we, you know, we need to have live events, but if you are looking to do a virtual event and or a first-time event, please reach out and we're happy to talk to you and see how we can help you. So thanks so much for being here and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone.